Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Jason Stanley. His new book is titled How Propaganda Works, and it's about to be published by Princeton University Press. Stanley is Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Propaganda is the name of a familiar collection of phenomena, and examples of propaganda are easy to identify, especially when one looks at the output of totalitarian states. In those cases, language and imagery are deployed by the state for the purpose of shaping mass opinion, forming group allegiances, constructing a worldview, and securing compliance. It's undeniable, though, that propaganda is employed by liberal democratic states as well. But it's also undeniable that the use of propaganda there is especially problematic, as propaganda looks incompatible with the democratic ideals of equality and autonomous self-government. It's surprising, then, that the topic of propaganda is relatively under-theorized in contemporary political philosophy. In How Propaganda Works, Jason Stanley develops an original theory of propaganda, according to which propaganda is the deployment of an ideal against itself. Along the way, Stanley distinguishes various kinds of propaganda, and he explores the connections between propaganda, ideology, stereotypes, and and group identities. Stanley's central thesis is that propaganda poses an epistemological problem for democracy, as propaganda is the vehicle by which false beliefs are disseminated and opportunities for knowledge are closed. How Propaganda Works makes an important contribution to political philosophy. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jason Stanley. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? Great. Well, it's good to have you on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning into the podcast. My guest today is Jason Stanley, and we'll be talking about his new book, How Propaganda Works, which is about to be published with Princeton University Press. Now, um, Jason's book takes up a range of familiar, but it seems to me surprisingly under-theorized phenomena uh, surrounding our beliefs about moral, social, and political matters that seem oddly stubborn and prevalent, but at the same time sort of subliminal and not easily accessed and not commonly reflected on. Um, Now, I think one of the really interesting features of the book is – that Jason brings to these issues um, his longstanding, you know, uh, work on philosophy of language and epistemology. So how propaganda works um, uh, engages some crucial issues at the intersection of areas of philosophy that are commonly treated as more or less unrelated. Um, So there's a lot to talk about here. Um, But let's begin where we usually begin, that is with the author. So, Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into philosophy and that sort of thing? So I was born in 1969 in Syracuse, New York, right after the civil rights movement. And the 70s were um, the most uh, integrated schools in, in, I think, U.S. history. And so that was my early childhood. Uh, My father was a sociologist, a Habermasian, who taught the social theory and political theory class, taught social theory and political theory. And uh, and so so I grew up with this vague sense uh, in the household that uh, 
the democratic project involved philosophy, speech act theory and Kant. Um, so, so I went to, uh, college when I was 16 at the state university of New York at Binghamton and, uh, and just got hooked into philosophy. I, I transferred to Tübingen to work on Kant and Hegel, um, and discovered sort of philosophy of language and philosophical logic and ended up at MIT for my PhD working in highly technical set of issues not uh, that are, are fairly distant from uh, from political reality, uh, which was the hope for goal. <laughs> um, so uh, so I think the formative thing and. I won't go through all the different positions I've held. I'm now a professor at Yale University. Um, I think for me, uh, the formative uh, intellectual moment um, in my life was sometime in the late 90s when I woke up and I realized what had happened in the prison system. Mm. My mother, to whom the book is dedicated, was a court stenographer in Manhattan District Court for 33 years um, in New York uh, uh, both in Syracuse and in Manhattan. And I was hearing about this flood of, uh, essentially racism, uh, passing through our prison system. So, uh, my mother isn't very political, so she would just report the situation. So, so I think I started, I started to feel that the political philosophy that was available to me wasn't helping me understand what was going on. I think I'm of the generation of political philosophers in America who are affected by some of the failures of liberal democracy. We didn't come right out. I didn't start writing right after the civil rights movement. Uh, <laughs> I started, I, I woke up and said, wait, uh, look around. Um, you know, there's like 2 million more people in prison and jail. Uh, and we're supposed to have gone through the civil rights movement. What happened? Um, and I wasn't finding any clear answers. Uh, and I didn't think philosophy of language was necessarily helping me either. So, um, so that was really, really what I wanted to do is to understand. And then, and then the Iraq war, uh, happened, which only furthered my, so if, if you're born, much earlier than I was, you might have thought, well, Vietnam would have been the last war where we were tricked into doing something horrific. Uh, but it really seemed that uh, there were some serious failures of liberal democracy um, and, and it wasn't clear how to undo them. So uh, so I wondered what what was happening and it, and it wasn't helping me looking in in political philosophy. So I was wondering. Uh, so. So I started thinking uh, about uh, what happened. And in 2010, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration and the Age of Colorblindness, came out. Um, and Elizabeth Anderson's The Imperative of Integration, both, right. both of which take uh, an ideal, colorblindness, and they say, actually, this ideal isn't very good um, because... It's not possible to ignore color in the United States. If you ignore color, you're going to ignore racial injustice. Colorblindness is too idealized. It's, uh, so that's why 
you know, Michelle Alexander subtitles her book, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is political philosophy that's trying to explain how virtuous ideals get misused or somehow epistemically mess with us. So we don't see things. So, uh, so I was attracted at that. I, I was reading throughout, uh, I read it soon after it came out, my Yale colleague Veshla Weaver's paper, Frontlash, Race and the Development of Punitive Crime Policy, which was trying to explain how mass incarceration uh, happened right after the civil rights movement. Um, so, uh, so, and she argues that it involves a kind of change of focus of the ideals from social justice to law and order. And, <laughs> and then law and order gets misused. Yes. Uh, so this, so you have a bunch of literature here, like Naomi Murakawa's book, The First Civil Right, How Liberal Liberals Built Prison in America, that also sort of goes this way, that tries to say, well, somehow these sort of, there was lots of lawlessness happening, there was lynching, but merely making it everything law and order didn't sort of exacerbated the problem. Um, so, so I started getting interested in the misuse of ideals. And when I asked ethicists and epistemologists and political philosophers, they said, oh, ideals can be misused. That happens. <laughs> you know, the, what's that? That's an empirical question. <laughs> Is that philosophy? Um, and, and I sort of scratched my head uh, and, and I, I, then I started, then I discovered Charles Mills's The Racial Contract and I started putting things together, um, that there was actually a huge literature on this. Um, uh, one thing that helped was, uh, when Vashla Weaver and I published a piece in the New York Times Stone Column on mass incarceration, uh, we used uh, talking about some of these issues, misuses of ideals, we didn't use any black philosophers in our piece. And uh, Tommy Curry and, and John Drabinsky wrote this excellent piece criticizing us for that. And that led me to this amazing, what, 200-year-old wealth of literature, the black intellectual tradition, um, which is uh, centrally focused on misuse of ideals. So, uh, so Mills, in his recent racial, racial contract, writes, uh, rather, it needs to be realized that in keeping with the Roman precedent, European humanism usually meant that only Europeans were human. Um, hmm. Then my friend Christy Dotson helped march me through this incredible literature, black feminist literature. Um, so Fanny Barrier Williams, in, in her 1905 piece, The Colored Girl, writes, the colored girl may have character, beauty, and charms ineffable, but she is not in vogue. The, music, the muses of song, poetry, and art do not woo and exalt her. Man's ex- instinctive homage at the shrine of womankind draws a line of color, which places her forever outside its mystic circle. So hmm. womankind excludes black women. Um, and, and you get this theme not just in in groups that have been oppressed, but you get it, of course, in anti-liberals. So it's very clearly in Pareto's The Rise and Fall of the Elite. The Nazi political theorist Carl Schmitt puts, puts a point, uh, well, uh, you know, in his usual succinct style, humanity has no enemy, at least on this planet. 
this truism is not refuted by the fact that wars are fought in the name of humanity. Uh, the goal is to dehumanize one's enemy. Um, and then putting it together with the social theory of the sort of 50s, you get, you get, you know, that's the literature where you really get a focus on this, where uh, C. Wright Mills and the power elite says, look, how much of the cogent, we hear all this stuff about democratic ideals, but how much of this, given, given they clearly aren't realized, rested upon a restriction of this public to the carefully, edu- the carefully educated. <laughs> so you get these, all these different literatures from national socialists to, uh, to, uh, to black feminists to, to white feminists to, uh, to social theorists, uh, making this point about the misuse of ideals um, and the sort of strategic misuse of ideals. Uh, and then you, you see this very strongly in literature on education. Um, so the, uh, in the 1900 to 1920. Um, so, uh, so there you get just a one quote from Woodrow Wilson's 1909 speech, The Meaning of Liberal Education. Uh, let us go back and distinguish between the two things that we want to do, for we want to do two things in modern society. We want one class of persons to have a liberal education, and we want another class of persons, a very much larger class of necessity in every society, to forego the privileges of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific difficult manual tasks. <laughs> so that's the meaning of a liberal education. Um, so, so, I realized that there was a very long, there's a very long, uh, there's, there's threads through Marxism, through critical race theory, through feminism, all about the misuse of ideals. And so this led me to investigate, uh, to my characterization of propaganda, which is, uh, the use of an ide- political ideal against itself. Um, so, so I, I, I wanted to, it took me a while to sort of, the, my, my initial change from philosophy of language to epistemology was because I wanted to explore this. I wanted to, to explore how this works, how we can be so easily tricked. <laughs> and, and that is, uh, epistemology. Um, ep- epistemology is not just the study of, uh, the necessary and sufficient conditions for knowledge. Hume didn't do that. Hume talked virtually exclusively about why we get screwed up. <laughs> um, you know, why we think there are, there are causal relations when there aren't, why we think there are objects out there when we aren't, when there aren't. So, uh, so this is of course a theme of Charles Mills saying that, in fact, a lot of philosophy was about why things go wrong. And so, so I, I wouldn't, uh, my view is not, I, I wouldn't call myself an anti-liberal. Uh, I remember when I, the first draft of the book, I met with Noam Chomsky in, in March of last year, and he said, who was a professor of mine uh, when I was a grad school, grad student, and he said, Jason, you can't have like the main figures be Carl Schmidt and Walter Lippmann. You know, (laughs) you got to like this point is not just a national socialist point. (laughs) It's not just an anti-democratic point. Um, It's a point that occurs uh, 
that that is very clearly there in uh, in groups that have that have felt um, uh, the the misuse of liberal ideals. Um, so I wanted to study the structure of that misuse, and uh, and I feel that my biography ties into that. My biography is the biography of uh, someone who lived during a time when those ideals were badly misused in my country. Um, it was a very different time than uh, coming out of the civil rights movement and, and the protests against Vietnam. Uh, and, and I found there just wasn't enough, enough work on this. And it, it's, it's really taken me uh, many years uh, to, to assemble uh, all the different pieces. Uh, I had a lot of help from my, um, from my, my family because my, my father's book, was on a similar subject, <laughs> the technological conscience, survival and dignity in an age of expertise. And my stepmother, a political theorist, had sent me a whole pile of, of his books. And I had left, there were six boxes of books on educational theory. And I was like, well, what the heck is this? <laughs> and when I met with Chomsky, he said, well, you can't write a book on propaganda without a chapter on the press or education. Right. And I said, well, you've written Manufacturing Consent. And he said, well, you know, write on education. And I said, well, I'm not a scholar. And he said, well, if you start anywhere in, Amer in the history of American education. And then I realized that my mother and my stepmother had sent me six boxes of books on the American education system. She knew something you didn't. <laughs> oh yeah, she she sort of gamed my book this way. She sent me, you know, she sent me the the libraries for chapters of them. <laughs> uh, so uh, and it turns out, you know, there, there's this very dark time in the history of American education, 1900 to 1925. Um, vocationalism. Uh, you you you're a Dewey scholar, so you, you're aware that Dewey was heavily involved in this, trying to right. fight back against vocational education, um, trying to consign one group of society to menial labor, essentially. Well, that's right. Um, well, one of the things that uh, comes out in the book is, um, is connecting with a lot of the, um, the, the sort of narrative that you're telling, because the book is really filled with these autobiographical comments about um, the impact of your family and um, some of the political events uh, that uh, you've witnessed uh, in your life. But also I take it that um, not only did this, uh, you know, d did these experiences go into um, and lead you to write the book, but um, the uh, you've decided to um, donate the proceeds of the book. That's right. I've, I'm, I've joined the board. I, I looked around for a group that most reflected the kinds of thinking that I'm doing in the book about, about propaganda for the case of mass incarceration, because that's one of the case, cases I look at uh, in, in greatest detail. And I really started with a bunch of different groups, but I landed on this group, the Prison Policy Initiative. And the reason I landed on them is because they were thinking about the structure of the prison industrial complex in a way that, that first of all, was 
recognized its complexity. So, for example, they're the, the experts on prison gerrymandering, where states count residents of a prison who are non-voting as residents of the rural area in which the prison is. And so then people are incentivized to go for prison, to push for prisons and harsh penalties. Um, and uh, urban residents move to the to rural areas to enrich the rural areas without getting uh, a vote. Um, they also focus uh, another of their one of their focuses is very close to uh, to the discussions in the book uh, school drug zones. So school drug zones. Who could be against? So, so a lot of mass incarceration happened with with appeals to values that everyone shares, right? And that's what my book is about, how injustice can happen under the mask of values we all share. Um, so school drug zones, how could one be against that? Uh, they, they provide for minimum sentencing for drug uh, crimes within a certain range of a school. So, so it sounds like, so everybody votes for them. But then when you look at them, you realize that urban city dwellers, <laughs> most African-Americans in this country, and uh, 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 all live near schools. Right. And uh, upper middle class whites live in the suburbs. They don't live within, you know, a thousand feet. It's 1,500 feet in New Haven. So every inch of New Haven, except for somewhere on the New Haven golf course, <laughs> uh, is a prison drug zone. So it allows prosecutors just, you know, infinite power. Uh, and it's clearly racially and it, and it, and it keys off segregation. So, so they're not afraid to go after, uh, these, these, these policies. If we're going to solve mass incarceration, we need to de-propaganda. We need to, uh, you know, super predator theory. We all know super predator theory was a load of crap. The theory in the mid nineties that, you know, there was a, a group of super predators that were going to be, that needed to be jailed for life, uh, turned out to be complete hooey. But that engage in wilding and that, other kinds exactly. of odd forms of activity. Exactly. And, and based on totally junk science, John DiULio at Princeton, but there are 40 states that Passed laws based on super predator theory. And how do you unpass those laws? How do you unpass school drug zones? Uh, so, so that's, that's a very difficult issue about educating people, uh, that PPI has taken on. So, so what I've done is I've, I'm giving them all my royalties. Uh, I'm giving them my advance the Chinese translation rights sold, so I'm giving them that. I'm doing a fundraiser for them in New York City uh, in a few weeks, uh, and I'm going to give them also my honoraria for the next two years. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Good for you. Um, well, great. I mean, and it's nice to see the, um, you know, uh, philosophers, you know, sort of uh, putting their money where their mouth is, uh, in this case, uh, pretty literally, uh, if you're giving them honoraria for your speaking engagements. Yeah. Um, so let's now talk about some of the the actual uh, uh, moves that you make in the book. Um, 
And I think that a, a natural segue was just to pick up on, uh, on some of what you were just saying. Um, the book begins with a description of the problem of propaganda and a, uh, an argument to the effect uh, that propaganda is a particular kind of problem or a special kind of problem within the context of a liberal democratic political order. Um, can you just uh, sort of sketch that, that series of thoughts there that, that begin the book? Good. So what I do there is I, is I say, first of all, I try to argue historically that propaganda is a much more central issue in democratic political theory than uh, than is presented sort of post Rawls. Uh, Book eight of the Republic, uh, uh, Hobbes, Rousseau, uh, you know, Rousseau says uh, political political theorists laugh at the system I'm describing uh, uh, because um, they think a, a, a wordsmith, a magician with words, from uh, would uh, would just bewitch the people of London and Paris. So, so propaganda is taken as this very significant problem for democracy historically, and and it, it propaganda. I'm, I'm using your propaganda and ideology. They're, they're so tightly related in my classification that uh, I mean, you see in Federalist Ten. Of course, factionalism, which is another word for ideology, ideological belief, factionalism is presented as the central problem for uh, for democracy and the, Madison's justification for representative democracy, as the representatives, of course, as we know, are going to be fair and not partial, cool headed yeah. and all the rest. Yeah. We can say people are always like, you're talking about pure democracy. This is a representative democracy. But the representative part didn't work. Right. So, so fact, so here's this huge problem historically, even in our own polity, uh, ideology and propaganda. Um, and so I wanted to spell out specifically why it's such a problem for democracy. Um, so why historically it's been such a problem. So, um, so I go through a number of different views of democracy from economic democracy, to epistemic democracy, to deliberative democracy, and argue that in each case, if you have uh, a if you have uh, a way of closing off certain legitimate paths uh, for decision making to take, then that's going to block people from pursuing their own interests. That's going to block deliberation. That's going to block uh, uh, deliberation either. Uh, reflection, as in, or or uh, of the talking kind, um, it's going to block the uh, the the free flow of uh, the sort of autonomous uh, nature, uh, the notion of autonomy that that whatever version of democracy you endorse uh, is going to be at its heart. So, if you think autonomy involves the freedom to pursue your own life path, well, propaganda and ideology will close off certain life paths. Um, you know, uh, Richard Wright speaks very movingly of this in Black Boy, how uh, the schools te- taught him, the schools seemed to teach him that he could do no more than menial labor, um, that any other path was closed, locked off to him. And, uh, and that's because the schools were systems of uh, indoctrination. 
of propaganda. So, uh, so, so democracy, there's different versions of democracy. Each version of democracy is going to, uh, each version of a democracy requires a certain kind of freedom, different kinds of freedom for different cases. And propaganda poses, uh, a, uh, an obstacle to all of them. It rules out certain choices that should be considered for the choice to have been a democratically autonomous one. Right. And, and it, would, it, would, would you welcome the thought uh, or the, the one way of encapsulating this, that the problem of propaganda, uh, as you see it, um, is, uh, is a problem of a certain kind of ignorance. I mean, it's sort of one of the staples of anti-democratic arguments is the, the sort of the, the, the ignorance of the population. Mm-hmm. This is part of what goes on in Book Eight of the Republic, and uh, it's certainly a staple of um, uh, um, even some people who argue for the economic theory of democracy argue for that view of democracy on these grounds. Right, that people are people don't know enough to to make good decisions. Um, but I take it that the problem of propaganda, as you understand it, is about a different kind of ignorance, right? It's not the kind of ignorance that we're uh, constantly reminded of when we look at these, you know, political science polls about how few people can, you know, name the three branches of government. Um, propaganda is about, um, uh, as you understand it, is about a kind of um, inability to access uh, and critically reflect upon, therefore, um, Beliefs that are kind of driving your political views. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, so, so ideology needs to be brought in here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, because, uh, I, the way I end up characterizing ideology and propaganda, they dovetail perfectly together. Uh, so there's two kinds of propaganda. Uh, so I, I go through a lot of, uh, codicils to that. Um, other authors from Littman and Schmidt, Klemper, Chomsky, use different notions of propaganda than I do. And I distinguish <laughs> those notions from the ones um, I discuss. Uh, I don't think they're fine-grained enough. So I make a distinction between supporting propaganda, which is like um, appeals to patriotism uh, w- that uh, without, without reason, just... Um, merely emotional appeals, as it were. I do think emotions can be reasons and propositional attitude states, but, uh, but supporting propaganda increases an ideal without a good reason. It does it sort of by appeal to, uh, to emotions not backed up by evidence. So, uh, so patriot waving the flag, uh, uh, to increase patriotism, um, as an example of supporting propaganda or, uh, or, uh, just, you know, pictures of, uh, emotional appeals to the, the ideal pictures of the Alps for Teutonic, um, you know, Teutonic glory. Uh, so, um, but the more interesting kind of propaganda, that's the kind of propaganda you see in authoritarian states, you know, lots of marches <laughs> in authoritarian states. That's, you know, um, uh, so, uh, but dem- democracy, liberal democracies, you can see that liberal democracies have a problem with propaganda because it seems incompatible with liberal democracy to have a ministry of propaganda. Right. Whereas plenty of authoritarian states have, have ministries of propaganda. So, so I wanted to explain that. So, um, so 
So undermining propaganda is a relevant kind of propaganda uh, that occurs in liberal democracy. And, and it's connected to what I to this misuse idea, this the misuse of liberal ideals. Um, it's, as it were, the fault. Uh, um, it's when you appeal to a uh, an ideal uh, in the service of a goal that tends to erode that very ideal. So uh, so. So appealing to uh, stability in invading Iraq when invading Iraq made us less stable, arguably, arguably, <laughs> uh, um, appealing to law and order uh, during the uh, during the uh, late 80s when, for example, in in Los Angeles, 50 percent of black men 30 and under were listed as gang members, so could be charged with conspiracy, if anyone who was supposedly in their gang did anything. Uh, so you just had these masses, massive number of people going to prison, and that was supposed to be for law and order. Um, the uh, Or it's just a shakedown. I mean, that's <laughs> that was the other way in which that worked out, right? That it was just a way of extracting money. <laughs> absolutely. As, as Tony E.C. Coates uh, says, uh, Plunder is right. uh, is uh, is a central feature of uh, negative feature of the American policy, and uh, and and PPI takes on those aspects as well how, uh, uh, in creative ways. Uh, but why is it that we didn't recognize? Why is it that in the late eighties, early nineties, it seems plausible to us that a street version of a drug that Wall Street bankers regularly use made people into monsters. Uh, the reason it did, and here I use Carl Hart's excellent book, High, uh, High, uh, High Price, about the drug war, which, um, and he traces this back, back to the 1920s. Uh, the drug war has always gone with an ideology that blacks go especially crazy when they take drugs. Right. And, and so that's why these crazy prison uh, sentences that 17 year olds were getting, like that, that Tupac Shakur sings about in life goes on. His friends going to jail for 50 years. Um, uh, that's why they seemed, you know, not alarming to us because we thought there was, we had this tacit ideology that made us think that, you know, this was somehow okay to have these differential sentences because blacks were different than we are. Um, and, and so ideology comes in to lead us to fail to see the conflict between the ideal and the goal. So why did the Iraq war work? Why did saying that you know, 69% of Americans in February 2003 believed that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11. Why was that? Well, because of an ideology that, uh, that our, uh, Muslims are, or Arabs are terrorists. And so just because, so people didn't, you know, just found it very plausible that he was involved. Um, so, so that that enabled them to that that as it were blinded them uh, to the conflict 
between stability and invading Iraq. Yeah, and just on that point, I mean, you bring this up in the book, and I don't know whether our listeners um, are uh, avid watchers of documentaries, but um, the Errol Morris documentary about Rumsfeld, um, the, uh, the unknown known, um, has a, a really interesting moment, which you talk about in the book, where, um, and I believe Rumsfeld really thinks that he and nobody else in the administration ever planned to try to mislead people into making this error of thinking that Saddam Hussein was uh, in, in some way behind or involved in the 9-11 attacks. Um, and so he just affirms this, right? We never said that. And then you, Errol Morris, the documentarian, you know, sort of cuts away to all of these places where it's clearly being right. uh, asserted, not only just suggested, but asserted. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's part of part of the problem. I, I mean, you know, one could just say of, of Rumsfeld, well, he's just a liar. Um, and, you know, maybe he is a liar. But there's also this this sense. And I think that the book does a good job of getting at this, that. Maybe the problem is that it's not clear whether he's lying. Maybe he actually believes this false thing, uh, and that belief is something that can't be dislodged, even in light of the facts. Right, and yeah. So I, it's it's. I think I think in the Rumsfeld case, uh, having looked at some of uh, looked at some explicit propaganda, say the. Uh, uh, I talk about Frank Luntz's Israel Project reports uh, right. in the book, um, and they're pretty cynical. Um, so this uh, is very sophisticated, uh, but cynical. Um, I don't think it matters if Rumsfeld uh, believed it. I argue that in, in I argue that in my book, sincerity doesn't. You know, you can be right. sincere and not think you're doing propaganda and still be doing uh, delivering propaganda. Um, because under the grips of an ideolo- of a flawed ideology, uh, uh, but on the empirical question, I'm betting that uh, in that case it was fairly deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but the reason it worked is because uh, of a widespread ideology, flawed ideology that lumped Saddam Hussein in with deadly enemies of his. Um, right. So, uh, so the ideologies work. Propaganda undermining propaganda involves this contradiction, and the reason we don't see the contradiction is because we have an ideology. This is Karl Hart's high pr- book, High Prices, very, very good on this. When he goes, shows again and again how crazy some of the claims and the policies were about uh, and underlying. Uh, uh, Differential sentencing when it's clear that crack is cocaine. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's very clear that, uh, you know, what you have is, uh, is a view that uh, there's a special violence problem, uh, associated here with, um, with, uh, with the drug. And, and then the bizarre thing is the drug war was done for the benefit of, uh, of poor urban blacks. Right. I mean, like the just Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign kicks off with her surrounded by young black children. It's right. supposed to be for them. You know, how many of them went to prison? How many of their parents went to prison? Um, so that's like health, you know, uh, 
health and security, uh, but really against health and security. Um, so, so the way ideology and propaganda work together for me is ideology makes propaganda effective. And does it, let me ask them, so just to get the connection, uh, uh, because it is very tight in the book. Yeah. Um, so propaganda is this, generally speaking now, this sort of appeal or use of an ideal as a way of undermining the ideal. So as you said just a moment ago, there's a, a kind of practical contradiction involved in propaganda um, that is stark enough that it should be easy to see. Right. Uh, so the task then is why is it that we don't see it? And so the case of law and order being used actually to destabilize and extort uh, um, citizens, uh, why didn't we? Why couldn't we see that? Or why didn't we see it? And the answer there, uh, your answer there is because we're in the grips of a flawed ideology. And what an ideology is, or what a flawed ideology is, I should say, is this sort of network, perhaps, of beliefs and attitudes that, uh, how to put it, um, that in some systematic way are part of our make make knowledge inaccessible to us, or something like this. Okay, l- let me um, let me say a little bit about uh, about the notion of ideology uh, sure. that I employ because uh, I, I draw uh, I draw on uh, a bunch of sources. I'm most affected by uh, by Sally Haslinger. Her book, Resisting Reality, is, in my view, a titanic work of social and political philosophy. So, so she, uh, uh, Haslinger, and Haslinger's drawing on Shelby, on Tommy Shelby, uh, a great 2003 paper by Tommy Shelby, um, where, uh, Shelby characterizes an ideology as a flawed social identity. Uh, sort of a social identity. So you can imagine a characteristic case being uh, the social identity of a uh, of a slaveholding family. Uh, so, so Chris, my colleague Christopher LeBron, calls these legitimation myths. They, uh, you say, well, you know, I don't have to work in the fields. I don't have to. Uh, I get my food for free. Uh, other people labor for me. Uh, I must be better and actually deserve it. Right. Um, so, and if you don't think you're better, well, then you have to confront the thought that you're a really bad person and not just you, but your parents were really bad people and their parents. Um, and, uh, and so what I do is I take this idea of a social identity, uh, sort of a pattern, a pattern of beliefs that, that, sort of tells you who you are in your social world. Um, first of all, following Hasslinger, I make it neutral. So we all have ideologies. Um, some are bad ones and some, some are okay. Um, and then secondly, I connect it with the social psychology literature. So say, for, for example, uh, putting it into this framework allowed me to see what Claude Steele was doing. Uh, so Claude Steele, the great Stanford psychologist, um, one thing that social psychologists will tell you is like one incredible thing about him is he's had these two very different uh, successes. Self-affirmation theory, um, uh, which is about our need to feel uh, at, like we are, we have integrity and uh, stereotype threat, which is uh, 
what happens when we take on uh, stereotypes, negative stereotypes of the wider environment. Um, but if you if you put it in this sort of framework of ideology, you can see that what he's ex- exploring are two different facets of ideology. Self-affirmation theory is about why the privileged think they deserve it. Mm-hmm. And stereotype threat is about the ideology of the oppressed uh, when they take on the stigma of the oppressors. So, so, so the idea is where you... You mean, I'm sorry, you mean the stigma ascribed to them the by their... The stigma ascribed to them yeah. by, by yeah. the right. So, uh, so, so what you have is you have these social identities, and the social identities give you beliefs that are connected to who you are. And because they're connected to who you are, they're hard to change. As I say in the book, you know, dropping an ideological belief amounts to dropping your friends. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's not just an argument, you know. So, you know, it's the church you go to. Uh, <laughs> It's the uh, uh, or the secular humanist Unitarian. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it, so 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 that's the. Um, so I think we all have ideologies. It's just that certain ideologies are democratically problematic. And those are the flawed ideologies. Those are the ones that that arise in conditions of injustice. Um, and I think those are characteristically things like Crystal Braun's legitimation narratives, self-affirmation stories that you're okay after all, uh, you deserve your ill-gotten, your inherited wealth, uh, and the uh, uh, what happens to oppressed groups in such situations. Right, but l- let me just ask you to, to clarify uh, a little bit more um, that what's flawed. Uh, in these um, examples of ideology. Um, so you say that they arise uh, under conditions of social inequality, um, but you, you're you very careful in the book, I think, to say that, yeah, but w- what's flawed is not only that there's something morally sort of disreputable about their, their origin, <laughs> uh, what's flawed about flawed ideologies is something epistemological, right? I try to sort of as much as possible, say it's just epistemological. So, right, so right. Tamar Gendler, in a brilliant paper uh, in 2008 in Mind and Language, talks about the uh, negative epistemic effects of living in, uh, in, of growing up in unjust circumstances. Uh, mm-hmm. So, the idea, uh, so I try to spell out, I spell out a number of different ways in which uh, growing up in unjust circumstances will will give you uh, epistemic problems. So mm-hmm. one I think is familiar. The great uh, Miranda Fricker uh, and a lot of uh, so Miranda, Miranda Fricker's epistemic injustice sort of brought this to the fore, though it's it's very much there in a lot of feminist and black feminist literature uh, that. Uh, you might lack the concepts, you know, right. uh, you might, uh, but, uh, the concepts you have might be skewed concepts, might, might lead you, uh, so there's a wonderful passage from Iris Murdoch I talk about 
about uh, a mother. Um, this is a beautiful example of, ide- of ideological conceptual scheme. A mother who uh, is very jealous, who who decides her her daughter-in-law is vulgar and uh, and ordinary and crass, and uh, and then she she after over a period of years she rethinks and she says maybe I'm jealous of my daughter-in-law for being with my son. And maybe I've adopted these, this conceptual scheme that ranks people into ordinary versus, into vulgar versus proper. Uh, maybe I'm thinking this way because I'm jealous. So she decides to put jealousy aside and she sees reality. She sees that what she saw as vulgar was in fact, uh, a sort of directness, uh, a sort of a refreshing directness. Um, so the idea is that uh, flawed ideological belief, flawed conceptual schemes will bar you from seeing social reality. Um, and the other way, which is novel with the book, is something I've been planning since my first book, Knowledge and Practical Interests, where uh, I did something where epistemologists thought I was sort of mad, but, uh, <laughs> but I was motivated by I was thinking... Well, uh, power, epistemic authority, and practical authority are intermingled in the world. <laughs> and epistemology is this sort of pristine thing, you know, that doesn't address this. And it's only sort of very difficult continental philosophy, which does. So let's try to work this out, the sense in which power and uh, practical authority and epistemic authority were linked. So I really, with the use of apolitical examples argued that uh, and put it on with John Hawthorne and Jeremy Fantel and Matt McGrath, uh, put it on the table in epistemology in a very serious way that the more you have at stake, the greater the epistemic barrier is to knowledge. And this is going to have a clear effect on democratic deliberation, on, uh, on, uh, on action, uh, because uh, because the, those people who don't have resources will have a higher epistemic barrier to meet. And what I do in the book is I show how I go through the last 10 years of debate in epistemology about this and show how no matter how you go on this question, you get an epistemic problem. You get people with fewer, less resources being treated as if they don't know. Uh, so if you're a contextualist, if you're an error theorist, you you get, you know, just following the analytic epistemology literature, you get a political philosophy problem. Right. But so let me ask you just to say a little, I, I, I know it's it, it can be a bit technical, but about the pragmatic encroachment stuff, um, uh, because I, I, I take it that um, uh, your view of this matter um isn't only doesn't only commit one to say that people with much more at stake are uh, because of their um, disadvantage socially uh, are treated um, more frequently as if they don't know, but in fact they they in fact don't know. Right. Is that right? Right. That's so. Could you spell that out a little bit more? Uh, well, that was that was my view, and and uh, that's my that's the the view that that um, in fact it's in the nature of the knowledge relation itself uh, to be connected to uh, to practical interests. And there's there's kind of a simple argument for this. If you think that 
knowledge plays a certain fundamental role in action and deliberation. So Timothy Williamson and Knowledge and His Limits defended the thesis, the, uh, the knowledge account of assertion, um, uh, assert that P only if you know that P, uh, and the knowledge account of action, um, that uh, act on P only if you know that P. And that was a fundamental um, principle underlying my book. And I, John Hawthorne and I later wrote a 2008 paper defending the action knowledge principle. Uh, uh, I won't go into that now, but if you buy that role of knowledge in assertion and action, you face the following problem. Um, suppose you're not a skeptic. So you think that you know where your car is. It's in the driveway. Now, suppose I ask you, um, so, so to take a bet on, uh, you know, you get 10 cents if you're right. And, you know, the whole city will be destroyed with everyone in it if you're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, do you still, can you take that bet? Now, uh, if you say that knowledge is sufficient for action, then it looks like you can, and this is what Tim Williamson faced, it looks like you have to bat, you know, you have to bat the house, <laughs> you know, for 10 cents. You know, I mean, you, you, you know where, you're, you're not a skeptic, so you know where your car is. But, so you, you should bat just to get 10 cents because you know it. Now, mm -hmm. Hawthorne and my solution to that, we, we came from thinking about that dialectic in Williamson's work. Bantle and McGrath came at it, at it from a different point, is that when the stakes go up, that can undermine your knowledge. Right. So you could keep the knowledge assertion, knowledge action links, but only if you go for stakes sensitivity. Uh, right. And a lot of my epistemology work is about the connections between knowledge and action. Um, so, uh, so the stake sensitivity is, uh, you know, we all know from the epistemology literature, our judgments about n knowledge do shift. And so there's different theories about what makes them shift. Um, and, uh, and my claim is that it's in the nature of knowledge, uh, that it is connected to action in this way. Um, so this is, this is forced upon you. Now, what I do in the book is I show that even if I'm wrong, even if it's not part of knowledge itself, on every view that's been taken in response to pragmatic encroachment, you get the same result. Right. So, and, and you get the result. Uh, let me just uh, again try to make sure I'm, uh, I'm getting this right, um, because there's something at stake both for privileged people and disadvantaged right. people socially. Um, for the privileged people, they have an investment in a certain conception of themselves as deserving their privilege. Right. Um, and to give that up is a, you know, it, it, there's a risk involved or a loss involved in giving that up. So they're invested in, or uh, they're motivated to, um, have a certain set of beliefs about, um, their merit. Um, and they have an ideology that in, that enables them to sustain um, the belief that they're meritorious. Um, so there's something at stake there, and then there's something at stake also uh, uh, in the um, uh, 
in the case of the socially disadvantaged people who are lacking resources. Exactly. So <laughs> and so nobody has knowledge. Right. Maybe that's, so that's why when, when you're arguing. So, yeah, that's a that's a good point that the elite also the elite are not are going to. But the elite are going to think that they have knowledge. Yeah. yeah so we're going to act like they do. But the uh, but if you look at like an argument about raising taxes, uh, you know, the people, a one percent tax hike on or like just like doing away with the estate tax, which the estate tax, you know, only kicks in at for couples, ten million dollars or more. Uh, so it's like five thousand five hundred families that are subject to it. But um, many hundred, several hundred billion dollars, I think. I think it's some. I'm not exactly sure how, but it's some ungodly number. Um, so now that money would do wonderfully in uh, some program for health insurance or food stamps. Um, but what's going on? I mean, I mean, the rich don't really need like the full 100 million inheritance. Uh, but uh, but they think they discount the claims of the needy um, because you know, the needy really need it. So, so they think, oh, they're just, they're just thinking wishfully. They're, they're engaged in wishful thinking when they're not thinking, when they're not admitting that their poverty is their own fault. Right. So, uh, so, so, so I'm excited about that aspect of the book about bringing to bear really the, one of the major debates, maybe the major debate in pure analytic epistemology that was purely apolitical and showing that it has quite dr- dramatic political consequences. And that seems right. And it also, I think um, it, 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 it has a further virtue, I think, in that um, it, it, it enables you in the book to make a, a, a fairly compelling a compelling case for um, the importance of um, egalitarianism broadly understood uh, in our conception of, of social justice Absolutely. without having to to get without having to muddy without having to get into the muddy waters of um, some of the moral issues which are highly vexed and um, and you know, uh, 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 well trodden in 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 political uh, philosophy. Uh, to say that it's an epistemic problem, I think, cuts through a lot of <laughs> a lot of what looks to me like sort of overblown and uh, and and pointless at this point sort of debates in the social justice literature. You are absolutely right. That, in a sense, is the main argument of the book, about the, of the book. That there is there is an argument, an epistemic argument, that democracy requires egalitarianism uh right because without egalitarianism we're going to i mean you know madison's clear about this <laughs> factionalism <laughs> it comes from uh people having une- unevenly divided uh uh, uh <clears throat> um landholdings so right. um so uh so that's right it's an epistemic argument it's an argument that this system of government requires egalitarian egalitarianism just to work um, uh, not for moral reasons, but just otherwise, you know, it's not uh, any kind of democracy. Well, excellent. Um, so um, you've been you've been very generous with your time, um, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, uh, 
what's what's next? Uh, are you going to pursue more political philosophy? Uh, yes. Well, I, I, I'm going to continue to pursue uh, political philosophy. Uh, I'm thinking about a paper uh, for the rest of my career. Um, uh, I'm there. There, I have another paper that I'm working on on uh, on the role of uh, neutrality as a philosophical ideal. I guess that's sort of related to this. It's sort of related to my view that everyone has an ideological viewpoint. Um, so, so I'm thinking about no ideals like neutrality, um, which is kind of a liberal ideal. It's kind of like the, the epistemic version of the, of uh, colorblindness, I suppose. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I'm, uh, I have, uh, a paper arguing that neutrality uh, doesn't really make sense as an ideal. Um, I have a book. Uh, I'm working. I'm working on a book on the. Uh, I think it's tentatively called the uh, the history of meaning, uh, uh, which is a a book on the development of of the theory of meaning and formal semantics. Uh, I hope actually to include some political philosophy in it uh, because of issues about. I have a sort of line about. Uh, why Rawls doesn't really like truth in politics and why Habermas doesn't either. Uh, and uh, and uh, it comes from, you know, Habermas is very suspicious of semantics. Semantics is, does, uh, is involved uh, with some problematic metaphysics. Talk of truth uh, is sort of uh, ends debate. Uh, so, and, and I think that that's actually connected to some fundamental misunderstandings about the role of truth in the theory of meaning. So, so I, I see myself going forward, continuing to mix all the areas of philosophy. Um, I'm problem driven and not topic driven. Um, so uh, I can't see myself not being in, it's such an exciting time in social and political philosophy uh, where you know, feminism, Marxism, critical race theory are coming in. Uh, you know, we're seeing these, this sort of, uh, chain mixture of epistemology and ethics and, and political philosophy. Uh, and, uh, I, I see myself continuing, continuing to explore issues in the theory of meaning, in epistemology, uh, that have social and political import. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> I happen I'm I'm a big fan of um uh interlap uh sort of the, the exploring the intersection of uh, epistemology and political philo- political philosophy, particularly democratic theory. Um and um so I look forward to to seeing more work on that from you. Thank you. You've been very generous. Um the book is um How Propaganda Works. Thanks so much Jason for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. So much Bob, wonderful interview. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Jason Stanley of Yale University. We were talking about his new book, How Propaganda Works, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.